0: So today we're going to be talking about bisexual, non-binary, and other gender non-conforming persons. So thank you for joining me today in this podcast. And we have, uh, as always, fantastic guests from the Central Florida community. So to my left, I have Eric. I will let Eric introduce himself, his pronouns, and what do you do within their organization?
1: My name is Eric Suarez, I'm a nurse practitioner. I work in the area of family practice and infectious diseases here in Central Florida for Pineapple Healthcare. On a regular basis, we take care of everything from blood pressure, glucose, diabetes, and hypertension. But our primary thing that we do is we are looking to eradicate HIV from our local community here as best as possible. So a lot of PrEP. In fact, I am actually one of the first providers uh, right here in Central Florida, actually in the nation, to be more accurate, to have uh, prescribed and administer injectable prep so very small recent claim to fame here right here in central florida
0: and to my right i have a dr eric scrimshaw can you please introduce you to our listeners your pronouns and what is it that you do within your organization
2: absolutely so again i'm eric scrimshaw i am here at UCF College of Medicine. I am the chair of our Department of Population Health Sciences. Um, Many people will be more familiar with public health, very similar. And I run the department out at the College of Medicine. I joined UCF three years ago as the department chair. But before that, I was at Columbia University School of Public Health for over 20 years. And my research is focused on lgbtq health disparities and what is driving that and focuses both on hiv as well as mental health and substance use disparities that exist within the lgbtq population and many of my studies have focused specifically on bisexual men and specific high-risk groups of bisexual men
0: Very, very interesting. And we're going to jump into business as soon as we tell our listeners what beverages are we having today.
1: So I'm having Colombian roast with French vanilla creamer.
2: And I too am having Colombian roast, but mine is black as always.
0: Oh. So we have Eric S. and Eric S., with and without a K, having both Colombian roasts It's going to be interesting. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of pointing today. who am I talking to (laughs) fantastic so in previous episodes we have unscrambled the lgbtq plus alphabet soup today we're going to focus on the b on that lgbt spectrum so b stands for bisexuality let's talk a little bit about what is it and what
2: is it not I'm I'm happy to take a a stab at it you know a lot I think because bisexuality is a sexual identity. A lot of people can define their bisexuality and their experience with bisexuality differently than another person. And that doesn't make that bisexuality more valid or less valid. So, for example, there are some definitions of bisexuality where we're look where folks are thinking just on the gender binary you're attracted to both men and women there are others in the bisexual umbrella maybe that are more pansexual that would be it would be attracted to or interested in partners who are on any number of potential genders not necessarily just the two bi- traditional binary genders so my definition for bisexuality has always been you know an attraction or sexual behavior or partnering with partners of more than one gender and that and so that can come in many different ways it can be all it, it can be current partners Or it could be past partners. So just because you're currently seeing, currently dating, currently sleeping with someone who is of the of a of a different gender doesn't necessarily and may appear externally to be a heterosexual partnership doesn't make that person any less bisexual so that that's an important thing to keep in mind and and that's and that's different in terms of identity versus attract versus orientation or attraction so you know sexual orientation is really who are you attracted to who are you partnering with sexually and then there's how we think of ourselves and how we identify and so that gets back to this, you know, who are you currently with may or may not reflect your identity. And that's even more so the case with bisexual folks. So, for example, in our study of bisexual men, we interviewed over 200 men who had, who identified, well, who had both male and female partners in the past year. And if I'm remembering correctly, about a third of those men identified as heterosexual. So your orientation and your identity may not necessarily line up perfectly. And that's totally fine. That doesn't make those men less bisexual in terms of their orientation, and it doesn't make those who identify so somehow more or better at bisexuality
0: and from your conversation i love that we work on the complexity of that definition right as we discussed in in the previous sexual orientation podcast we had been defining people in terms of their sexual orientation by either their behavior who are they attracted to and how they identify and we have seen that they do not necessarily match we had interesting examples about one of our guests identifying as asexual but her orientation, she would tick the box of being heterosexual because that's she's more likely attracted to people of the opposite sex, even though sex is not an end game for that. So it's it's very interesting to let our listeners know that even though there are several domains out there, not all of them will necessarily match 100%. And I, I appreciate that. And I can't wait to hear more about that study. But for now, Eric, can you tell me a little more about your work with bisexual folks in the central florida community what is it that you observe in terms of these definitions is there any struggles or are they readily identifiable
1: so i definitely agree with eric in the sense that um it's like a spectrum within a spectrum in many different ways and unfortunately they uh, when i say they i mean bisexual people in general they are the second largest group of the LGBT rainbow right behind allies, but they are most likely or least likely to be visible. Also predominantly because of how they identify, right? Not As Eric mentioned, not many identify. It was only a third that did or did not. I forgot what it was. But it's only a third of a small portion will actually genuinely identify. However, they're orient- what they're actually doing in the community and what they're expressing is different. So there's also a lot of mismatch that we'll see. And that's one of the things that we noticed in the Pineapple Healthcare Clinic when a lot of people come to us. I have a recent example that I know of where we have a husband and wife couple where the husband recently came out as bisexual to his wife, unbeknownst to her. But this is something that he took a long time to understand about himself, that it was present and wanted to acknowledge, but it took a long time. And so... The wife is, is also having her struggles with the situation. Um, how do how does this redefine our marriage? How does it change anything? Does it change anything at all? So it's interesting because I love to see couples that are always willing to work through changes. Obviously, when we sign up for, to a marriage, you know, over time, things are gonna change. I say gravity is gonna have its play. Things are gonna sag. We're not gonna look the same. So we have to love each other through and through, right? And I think by our sexuality and understanding our sexuality is definitely
0: part of that. So let's demystify a couple of ideas of what bisexuality is not. Mm-hmm. Is
2: it a face? So I actually have research that can look at this. So one of the things I'm known for and one of the things I started my career on was working with Dr. Margaret Rosario, who did the first ever longitudinal study following LGB youth over time and so her work which i participated in as well as those of other researchers like lisa diamond and others have actually looked at you know do we see change and we actually do have some individuals who will identify as bisexual as part of the co- larger coming out process and maybe if we look at it over time maybe temporary so meaning they'll they'll identify as bisexual at one so point So translation
1: would be by now gay later?
2: Gay later. Exactly. Uh <laughs> perfect. So we see we see that happening but that doesn't make that their bisexuality less valid because at the time they're identifying they may very well strongly fully identify as bisexual it also can be a stigma reducing discrimination reducing harm reduction technique to try to to make a go of it and we want that because we want all of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters to be safe and healthy. So so that may be a perfectly valid transition to be bisexual at one point and then and then identify as gay, lesbian or something else later on. But there are others of course who will identify as bisexual and remain that way. And that's that's they're no, more, they're no better at bisexuality than those who, who may transition from time to time in their identity.
0: I love that answer because that makes me think of Lord Ernest Rutherford who said, the only valid conclusion that social sciences will ever bring is some do, some don't.
1: I definitely agree and I see a lot of, I will say that I am victim of that risk reduction technique. I always use myself, like I mentioned or, before, as um, a teaching tool for my patients all the time. Uh, Use whatever tools you have available to educate your patients to improve upon health and however you can so in my particular case when I as a Hispanic man growing up in or boy at that time growing up in Miami to a Cuban family first generation Right. How do I calling mom and dad that I'm gay? So I'm like, okay well, maybe bi is a little bit more socially acceptable. Maybe I can get them to wrap their minds around that and uh, Let's see how where we can take this ship from there and I didn't officially come out as gay until the age of 22 when I finished my first bachelor's degree and I knew like okay if mom and dad disowned me at this point in time then I have the resources the means everything to carry forward a fruitful successful happy life so I, I intentionally waited to that specific moment in time and that was very strategic on my part unfortunately a lot of you know and it's a risk reduction method and I, I did the same
2: it's it's part of you know The coming out process and the 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 identity development process you know is meeting partners and exploring identities and that the same kind of transitions happen with heterosexuals all the time in terms of meeting a new partner and and thinking well maybe i am bisexual maybe i'm attracted to this person in a way that I hadn't considered before. And that's that's just as valid as someone who knew they were bisexual right off.
1: And I think you're bringing you're you're driving around a point and I want to like stab it right in the center. Okay. And that is that so and when we talk or it's up to now, we've talked about sexuality as this fixed state, right? However, is it truly a fixed state? I, I don't believe so. I think it's an evolving state. So Earlier on in my life, right? I used it as a risk reduction method. And now later on in life, I kind of revisit those thoughts. Wait a second, was there a certain degree of interest in the opposite sex? To what degree of interest was there? Do I still have those interests? Now, as time has moved on and socially and society, and especially here in Central Florida, where we're very open and, and pride is everywhere, and transgender people are more present, like, okay, well, it's kind of forced you to reevaluate things right and to what degree of that is you and what is not you
0: yeah i love that idea that sexual orientation evolves as as many of human behaviors right being being just one of them you can see yourself i don't know endorsing one political party at some point in time and that evolves and that changes sometimes you reassess it and you are still there i hear changes every four years (laughs) We can use other examples, Eric. We can use other examples as well. But uh, as part of any human behavior, right, you can reassess it and get back to it. (laughs) Love it. And then now, regarding folks who identify as bisexual, regardless if it's a phase of their coming out process or if it's an identity that will be more or less permanent throughout their lives, is it considered a disease? I know we discussed that the gay identity or the homosexual identity was not deemed a disease by the WHO back in the 70s. Is there any data around bisexuality and that disease stigma nowadays?
2: So I think our current understanding informed by kind of a minority stress model is not so much that the identity itself results in psychopathology or any kind of health or mental disorders, but really it's the other way around. That it's, it is the stress and stigma and discrimination and rejection and other microaggressions, structural stigmas that we see experienced by the LGBT community, and particularly the bisexual community, we could get back to that, that's really driving the health disparities in the bisexual population. And so when we look at that, we do see in the bisexual community and population that there are, many studies have indicated there are more sexual risk behaviors, there are more mental health Disorders, whether that's at the clinical level or not, but certainly elevated levels of depression, anxiety, etc., and also drug use in terms of whether that's smoking, alcohol, or other drugs. Do see all of those present, more present in the bisexual community than we do even in the lesbian and gay community, and certainly more than the heterosexual community. So then the question is why are bisexuals at that higher level? And I think that's where we really need to be focusing our attentions and trying to figure out at least for us as researchers.
1: For me as a clinician, knowing this information, knowing these statistics and numbers when we when a person comes out to me as a healthcare provider, which in and of itself a lot of I think the last study I read was like only a third of bisexual identifying people do actually inform their healthcare provider that they are bisexual. So there's a lot of health discrepancies just from that lack of communication with the healthcare provider that comes from that in and of itself. Let alone knowing that identity, once it is identified, screening for depression and anxiety, screening for diabetes or elevated cholesterol. I do see that smoking and alcohol use or abuse is much more prevalent or in higher quantities luckily for me from my personal experience and as a clinician i don't see iv or street drugs used but i do see um cigarette smoking and alcohol to be more prevalent and it's and oftentimes as a compensatory mechanism to that stress and anxiety and microaggressions that are going on
2: and one thing i'll bring up from our study our whole our original goal for interviewing and doing surveys with our 200 men was to see are they engaging in potentially risky sexual activities that might transmit HIV from their male partners to their female girlfriends, wives, partners. And actually we found that that was not the case. That's that's often a stereotype of, you know, bisexuality as a vector of disease. Quote what's referred to as the quote unquote bisexual bridge. And what we actually found in our study was our men were very concerned bordering on paranoia to that they might bring anything whether it's an STI much less HIV home to their wives because if she catches something and she you know tests positive or you know, for an sti she's that's inherently going to raise questions about where d- yeah, where did she caught. get where did she get that and that's going to get him caught and that's because of the the fear and dislo- of disclosing that many of the many men have many bisexual individuals have men and women that was something that that they were really careful about to the point that they often would not have anal sex at all and would experience exclusively focus on oral sex with their male partners because they because they saw that as a, a safer alternative which is
1: interesting because yet yet again we're, re- we're going back to the topic of bisexuality and risk reduction methods interestingly in the clinic though i see i love taking care of bisexual men especially because of the situation prep is become a game changer and a saver for those who may not know and are listening in prep is pre-exposure prophylaxis it is it now comes in pill form and uh, once every two months injection and it protects you 99, at minimum 99.7 from HIV transmissions. And this is great because they can take this once a day pill or want an injection every two months and they can protect, make sure that they don't bring necessarily any HIV home, any long term chronic disease. However, that means that we have all the other STIs to worry about, but at least that any lifelong chronic disease will be prevented.
0: So we see how uh, these risk reduction strategies actually drive people to live longer, healthier lives, right? I guess my question goes in the lines of, uh, besides a, a healthier sexual life in terms of preventing disease, what have you observed either in research or in clinical practice that? also enhances that healthier lifestyle specifically for bisexual folks
1: so for me I, it's actually a simple tool that's available to everyone and it's free it's the magic of communication so going back to that original bisexual men who actually communicate with their healthcare providers only a third of them actually come out to their healthcare providers well If you communicate, right, and and this is kind of goes forwards and backwards. So if you communicate that to the people around you and you are out to the people around you, then it is more likely that you're gonna have access or the resources, the screening tools, what you need to live a more healthy or successful life. Having said that, why aren't they out or as prevalent has to do probably with a greater societal picture. And then that kind of interacts back and forth, right? I think it was Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk made it a point that it is not until we become visible that things will change. And I think with bisexuality, we're kind of revisiting that. They need to become more visible and we will see a paradigm shift. Mm
2: -hmm. At the at the same time, and I completely agree. I've written extensively about disclosure and openness and the coming out process for bisexual men in particular. But it's the ones who are the most open gain the most support therefore are the least depressed and the least anxious at the same time we also look at you know issues of internalization and and we can talk about internalized homophobia we can also talk about internalized biphobia and it's the same same parallel that we, we often see these these feelings of concern, about worry, about being discovered, and what the implications of that discoverer will be. So, for example, when we interviewed our men, they often talked about how they were certain if if their wives or girlfriends discovered that they had sex with men as well, that they would be divorced. They would, you know, they would de- destroy their relationship. This is what they believed would happen. I, and I, to be
1: fair to those wives or girlfriends, right, when they signed up for that relationship from the beginning, Their notions or thoughts was I'm signing up to this relationship with a heterosexual man. So the fact that that changes could change their view so I could see how their perceptions may be different.
2: But at the same time, I think many of our men, when we talk about them, they would have examples of people they had disclosed to and it always went better than they anticipated. Okay. So, you know, and, and of course, they're, they're going to choose that one person that is going to be the most accepting, who they think will have the least negative response. But and oftentimes there were discoveries. Yo, know, I got caught. I someone found out someone saw an email. Someone saw my web browser history, whatever it was. And surprisingly, it was it was they were surprised that it went better than it did. So I think often, regardless of your LGBTQ identity, we often have, have anti- our anticipation of the negative outcomes of disclosure are not always as bad as what we think. And I think also for, bis- for bisexual individuals in particular, you know, the disclosure and the decision not to disclose is often a self-protection mechanism as we've talked about before. That that they're they they want to maintain the relationship with their wife or girlfriend. They want to maintain their connection with their children. They maybe you know want to preserve the connections they have with the religious community, their ethnic community, what have you, and are fearful that any kind of disclosure in that with within that community may result in that disruption. So you know it's it's really to avoid stigma. And and that, you know, I think from my perspective is always we need to come out when we're good and ready. There's no rush in doing that, but at the same time, it may be less problematic when you do than you may anticipate.
0: And I love that approach because while there's no typical trajectory, I'm pretty sure seeing, hearing my crystal ball in your research, you probably have identified patterns of that coming out process, right? Absolutely. We have discussed before that there's people who would use it as a as a stepping stone in the coming out process use bisexuality as a stepping stone but there's also people who truly develop a more permanent bisexual identity and what can you tell us about your research and those findings on those patterns of coming out
2: absolutely so we in our work we've identified three sub what we call subgroups of of bisexual men one of whom are one group of which are more self-accepting less internalized by phobia who are maybe a little bit more open may actually have an ongoing relationship with a man as opposed to a single one-off encounters and then we have other we have another group other groups who are more likely to identify as heterosexual who almost ex- almost never have an ongoing relationship with a man and so are very much more closeted about their bisexuality. And then there's, there's a group of more bisexually identified men in the middle.
1: I would be very curious to see the age ranges for each group and to see if there's any correlation
2: that's a very good question. I'm sure I have that. I'm sure I've even controlled for it when we look for, you know, what are the implications of this on their mental health. But I don't know that I look, found any um, or looked at any differences between the groups.
0: Now, while well, that those are the patterns that we can observe in... Uh, Probably we need to control for other ideas. I don't think we have mentioned that that cohort is in New York, right? Absolutely. And these are bisexually identified
2: men behaviorally? So these are behaviorally bisexual men, not all of whom identify as bisexual. Because as I mentioned earlier, about a third of them actually identify as heterosexual to themselves. And publicly, I would say almost the entire sample publicly identifies as heterosexual.
0: So how does that translate into everyday clinical practice, Eric? Do you see, for example, any patterns of behaviors?
1: Absolutely. Fortunately and unfortunately, uh, what I've recently seen in the clinic is that my age group that I used to take care of skewed younger. 16 to 25 was predominantly the age group. They were coming in for STIs, screening, testing, prep, all that stuff that we associate with that group, that if people are learning, people who are just learning to discover their sexuality and, and practice it and today though that is different and that is not true and the majority of the people that i see now skew my eldest patient is 78 years old so what we see now is that that 50 to 70 something 80 something age group is just starting to blossom and discover themselves and they will come in and they'll tell me I was married to a woman 40 years of my life or whatever it may be and because of whatever happenstance happened in my life i finally came out or accepted myself and my sexual orientation and i'm i was educated by my community peers that prep is a thing and that i should definitely look to seek to protect myself and that's what brings them into the clinic but we definitely are seeing that population and we see that it is skewing older that there's like this societal thing that put them into like this permanent closet for a while and now they're like coming back out
0: that's fantastic and then that coming out process even if it's forced by a request for prep or a request for a uh, from a prior history opens the conversation and that communication channel with your healthcare provider as you were mentioning before right
1: that's my free and accessible tool for everyone is communication
2: i think that that actually brings up a really critical point as well in terms of culture and we haven't brought up ethnic differences and cultural differences that really profoundly influence this openness and communication process and so for example if you look at the research on bisexuality many many times the research is focused entirely on black and brown individuals and i'm and and in part because those communities frequent frequently will have more homophobic biphobic attitudes towards homosexuality and bisexuality than other communities although it's very interesting when we were looking at our participants we stratified so that we got equal numbers of black Latinx, white, and as many Asian men as we could find in our in our study. We're not California. New York is a little harder, so we, we hedged our bets there. But we it was interesting, although there's this this perception that there's different, you know that there's ethnic differences. And there certainly is in terms of overall prevalence of disclosure by ethnicity, we still were seeing white and Asian men have really low disclosure in that particular group if they're part part of a more conservative ethnic or religious community. So we would see Irish Catholic men, Italian Catholic men from Brooklyn who were white but would frequently talk about you know there's no way I can allow my catholic parents to know that I'm bisexual same thing in the orthodox jewish community of new york which we observed the same thing and then in asian men it's the same same way that we would see you know my parents immigrated to this country from the Philippines from wherever, and have very conservative religious community values, and therefore disclosure in that community is just as difficult for them. And so, although I think we we can understand and kind of wrap our heads around how that might be the case in the African American and Latinx communities, we see the similar dynamics play out with maybe less prevalence in white and Asian communities as well. So one thing is, I um, while doing my homework for this visit
1: today, exactly what Eric is talking about, right? So as humans, we are these unique animals that have culture and religion and all these, you know and what i loved about it is that there that doesn't exist with chimpanzees or, or orcas or sheep and so since our entire animal kingdom doesn't have these pressures of i mean i don't know do different chimpanzees well he has a bluer behind than you know than she does i don't know i would have to ask a chimpanzee maybe but you know can we see Bisexuality in the animal kingdom and extrapolate some information from there and apply it to humans because they don't have these stressors. Right. So how does that apply to us? And obviously, can we match the two or use it to our advantage?
0: And probably that reflects back to those ideas that we were discussing at the beginning on the stigma that is associated with that demystifying bisexuality right so one of the typical questions that we would see can bisexual people be monogamous because in a in a relationship that involves a person who's bisexual it's a little di- handling jealousy is a little different right in a heterosexual couple or in a same sex couple the jealous partner will only be concerned about 50% of the population out there but in a bisexual couple the non-bisexual partner will be perhaps concern about 100% of the population out there. Can bisexual people be monogamous? That will be my first question. And as a follow-up, how do bisexual couples or couples that include at least one bisexual individual handle that jealousy?
1: So I can definitely talk to the jealousy part. So jealousy is has an evil head and it has a horn on this side and horn on that side, no. Um, so no, the problem with jealousy, I feel like he- jealousy is a human emotion that is affected to all people. I think the problem with bisexuality is that from the patients I take care of, and I've had my conversations here in the central Florida area is that it intensifies and when it intensifies, it can almost border on a level of paranoia, right? So like, is he looking at her? Is he looking at her, you know, or or him or whichever gender it is. And that's where I go back to the communication. And I oftentimes ask my patients is like, have you used your words? Have you mentioned this to him or her? Have you talked about what your thoughts are and how this makes you feel? Unfortunately for me that I do do family practice, I oftentimes have them both in the room at the same time. So having that conversation, knowing when to have that conversation with both patients in the room or, bo- or having to separate them is important. But educating people on how to use their words and how to communicate is definitely a big problem solver.
0: And as Eric was mentioning, perhaps when, once you open up, You use your tool, which is your free tool, which is communication. But once you communicate surprisingly, those outcomes are better than people anticipate.
1: Right, because the other person is not guessing anymore. They actually come from a place of understanding.
2: I think, you know, so my research doesn't speak to this in part because we wanted potential population that might be at risk for HIV which was our whole goal we required all of our men to have had both a female partner and a male partner in the past year so we ex- we literally excluded from mono- from monogamy but at the same time the challenges that bisexuals may experience for monogamy i think are often overstated and that's a stereotype is because Every 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 couple is going to have challenges in terms of, are we going to be monogamous, are we not? There's no reason that a bisexual individual can't choose to be monogamous, just as a heterosexual individual can't choose to be monogamous. But at the same time, they may also have... You know, interest in and choose to have a more open relationship with that partner. But again, the communication about that is really what's critical. So I don't think it's inherently impossible. I think it's really a stereotype that they can't be. But at the same time, I think many bisexual individuals also are more open to having an open relationship with their partners than we might see in a, a heterosexual relationship, but not necessarily that much different than maybe gay men who also are more, more likely to explore an open relationship.
1: What I do see with on that note is that it's all about that communication piece in the beginning of the relationship. When you opt into that relationship, are you clear and upfront and concise with that person? It's like, okay, well, I'm a bisexual individual. I like both, I would like to continue to experience both throughout my lifetime. Is this something that will work for you? Having the courage to be able to meet someone new and communicate that to them and be ready for yay or nay responses is a big piece of whether that relationship will be successful.
0: So this has been an interesting discussion about bisexual people, but today's episode also focuses on uh, non-binary individuals. So let's start by making a difference on bisexual individuals, who is a sexual orientation, and now we're going to talk about non-binary individuals, which belongs to a gender identity. We have uh, talked about it in the LGBTQ Alphabet Soup podcast, but just as a reminder, we will have sexual orientation, which is greatly determined by who you are attracted to and who are you having sexual behaviors with and how do you identify yourself. And now we're going to talk about individuals who identify as non-binary, which is a sexual identity or a gender identity. And that belongs to how you fit within societal roles of being traditionally male or female, or refusing to fit in one of those two boxes. So when we talk about non-binary individuals, how is life for them in general more or less challenging than for people who fit in one of those two traditional boxes?
2: So, so I think it's it's it has gr- really great parallels to bisexuality. So if we think of bisexuality on a spectrum from completely heterosexual to compute completely gay or lesbian and everyone in between is some degree of bisexual right the same can be said for gender identity and gender and and nine non-binary gender identity so you have those who identify as men those who identify as women and everyone else who's on a spectrum between those two identities can may choose to identify as as non-binary
0: now how do how does the clinic and we'll get back to research but how does the clinic handle gender identity and how can we improve it for people who identify as non-binary
1: Non-binary is is probably one of the hardest um, areas to practice for. I'm happy, you know, at Pineapple Healthcare that we've kind of made a lot of strides here in the Central Florida area um, for both transgender and non-binary individual. I say non-binary is difficult because it's difficult from a clinic point of view. We've had to make our own strides to be sensitive to people's pronouns and what those are and to make sure that we're not we're not providing microaggressions to anyone we in our medical records ehr we actually have different flags instead of a patient face photo we actually have different flags to identify one's identity versus another Um, we actually have it listed what their pronouns are Uh, we do the same way that i encourage people to have those open and honest conversations in the beginning of a relationship i'm looking at that when i'm your healthcare provider that this is our medical relationship that we're going to share, right? This is h- how we're going to move forward. And I want to identify that I'm a he, him, his. What is yours? And what is, you know? establish everything from the get-go. This is how things are going to operate. And at any point in time, if it needs to change, it needs to change. Because like we mentioned before, humans are ever-evolving, and that's OK. Uh, non-binary is also an issue in the sense of treatment-wise because treatment for feminization, whether it be hormone or physical surgery, or masculinization for that matter, is very defined, right? We do live in a binary world, a male female binary world. So having the in-betweens is much harder to define and what is unique to that person and what their goals are. Societal issues, I feel that they do struggle with the same things that bisexual people struggle with, and to a lesser degree, to some way, because bisexual can be more invisible, right? They can blend into the binary world. Whereas non-binary people or genderqueer people, you know, the moment you look at someone, you can tell that there's something different. And to me, I think with newer generations, I think they're far more accepting than ever before. And I'm a millennial, so they're teaching me a whole lot every single day. Yeah, we could definitely see that things are, are moving in the right direction as far as a broader spectrum and a more accepting spectrum. But uh, it's going to take time. It's definitely going to take time
0: well after millennials we don't have a defined term the other day i heard that someone was proposing pandemials to be the next generation (laughs) so So, eric do we have anything on on the research side that actually points at non-binary individuals and their overall health
2: and health risks so really no i think at this point in in research we have very aggressively and actively picked up the ball in terms of transgender men and women and their unique health concerns, both in terms of really high HIV rates, um, drug use, mental health, etc. I'm working on it, Eric. And I'm working th- on it. <laughs> I know. we're we, And we need it. We really do. And it's a community that that frequently has been alienated from the healthcare system because of bad interactions in the past. And so to the degree that we can prevent those from happening going forward, it's really critical. And I think many of us are integrating Non-binary individuals into our research, both in terms of if we're if we're looking at men's health, we include non-binary individuals. If we're looking at transgender health, we're including non-binary individuals. What I think is the the challenge, and it was the challenge, twenty years ago when I started doing this work with the Alphabet Soup, is that we often lump Gay men and lesbians and bisexuals, both men and women, and transgender, and now non binary, we often lump everyone together. And I think, in particular, with non binary, genderqueer, transgender individuals, we often are the research is often lumping those individuals together. And so we don't have enough data to specific or enough participants in the research. Research to say, okay, what are the unique challenges and needs of non binary individuals? How do those differ from transgender women? How do those differ from transgender men, much less cisgender individuals? So I think that's the forefront that's a critical need in the research community but in as far as i know currently that's i i don't see that in the literature yet and to be
1: honest in the last literature i reviewed for prep i definitely see that there's no gender queer i do see gender uh transgender female transgender a masculine masculine or feminine but there's and it's been a push to include those people but i agree with you uh, transgender people and gender queer people are being just lumped in together, and oftentimes, and this is the worst part of this equation, is that
2: they're the smallest sample size or subset of a study. Absolutely, and so one of the th- one of the challenges of that for you know for those of us who are doing research with transgender community, with the non-binary community, with the LGBTQ plus community we're sensitive to these issues but we also need to get other more mainstream non-lgb focused individuals who are doing hiv research or you know mental health research or others to be able to do to help assist in these work whether that's big large nationally representative surveys or what have you one of the challenges though for those individuals is the ever-evolving need to tailor our surveys and our que- our research questions to adequately capture gender identity and their unique experiences. And I think that's been, for many people, they just don't know where to, where to go or how to do that best. And so they just, they either exclude anyone who's non-binary or they miss, they they assess it. it they um, the survey question inherently doesn't capture non-binary individuals, and therefore we just don't have the data. And so that's where we can you know assist in in trying to make those um, measures, whether that's on intake forms in clinics and healthcare settings. Or in the research world, make those more open and accepting and to capture non-binary identities? Because
0: from where I hear, typically on, re- on the research side is going to be a sexual orientation net that is cast and is you're either lgbt and it doesn't matter your gender identity. As long as you fit within these one boxes, right. you're going to be included. So we have that lack of data. So perhaps rethinking how we cast that net. What about the other box? In, into gender identity. Isn't there option D? I mean, multiple choice. No, that's ex- oh, That's exactly where I was headed. We are seeing some progress over there. And we are seeing, for example, the federal government including another category for passport. Oh. So now a passport includes for the sex slash gender category, there's male, female, and other. We have seen some states incorporate that in driver's license for example acknowledging that gender identity of people who do not fit in the two extremes of the spectrum right who do not fit in the male traditionally male presenting or the traditionally female presenting roles. so as we're saying we're all making small progress there but there's are still unmet health needs of those individuals we're probably making those strides in that direction and I also wanted to mention that is not only health But even language-wise, making those accommodations to be more inclusive and using non-gender language for example, it doesn't take a lot. Just switching ladies and gentlemen for folks, for an example, would be all-encompassing and is not that difficult. So we can post some resources for our listeners where we can use some of those language. And there's all those, and the language
1: is interesting because I've caught myself even being in part of the lgbt world being able to work at pineapple healthcare where i take care of largely my population is lgbt in one form or another regardless of what letter of the alphabet it is the interesting part is that you would think that for me that i wouldn't make those microaggressions right that i would be the all-knowing or the best resource and all reality is like i will walk into a room and ask oh how are you guys doing well, this is a room of mixed company, right? Mixed company of all sorts. And here, and yet, I've uniformly labeled everyone as masculine. And so now I have, I've consciously made it a point to calculate, is, is my room, my audience female? How are you gals doing? Or even then taking a step forward, is how is everyone doing? And so language is important and we need to evolve with time, yeah.
0: So this has been a very interesting conversation about bisexual individuals as a sexual orientation and non-binary individuals. And there's some parallels and differences in those groups. How can individuals who are listening to this podcast right now join your company's effort. I'll start with Eric. How can they get in contact with Pineapple Healthcare and the resources that are out there for them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Pineapplehealthcare.com is our website. We are a nonprofit Central Florida organization. To call us a medical clinic or a clinic is, I tell my patients all the time that that's a joke. The reason why I say that that's a joke is because we in no way operate that way. Um, the eight to five that you see on the front of the wall and door is is just a filler of numbers and times. Um, in all reality, work is never ending. Today I'm here with you guys. When I leave here, I'm going to the clinic to see more patients. And then afterwards, I go to the community to do HIV testing. So it's this never ending, you can see me ever, or one of our team just about anywhere in the community and wherever we are it is a point of care whether it's to get into care or to even clarify information about health in general so that's why i call it a joke because in reality you know for us we have a physical location but it happens everywhere whether it be virtually in person in the community whether we're playing kickball with you in the community it's like hey how often am i supposed to take that
0: did i miss my last appointment
1: so yes, we should see you again.
0: <laughs> Perfect, and we will leave a link to our listeners as well. Eric, do you have any research going on in Florida where our Florida listeners can join or or participate? Is there any future exciting projects? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. So we're we're about to launch the National Queer Women's Mental Health Cohort Study. This is actually going to be the largest sur- longitudinal survey of lesbian and bisexual women that's ever been funded by NIH. Its focus is on prevention of suicide and the the resiliency factors that individuals have. I'm working with Dr. Lindsay Taliaferro at the College of Medicine in Population Health. Her uh, expertise is in suicide within the LGBT youth population. And then I'm working with her on the longitudinal research side. So we will be working, we'll be launching that very soon. And one of the specific goals of that study is that we're we're recruiting equal numbers of lesbian identified women as well as bisexually identified women so that we have enough individuals to be able to see does that model work? in does our resiliency a suicide prevention model, does that work for both lesbian women? Do the same factors contribute for bisexual women or might there be different needs and different prevention techniques and therefore prevention interventions that are needed for the two groups. I'm delighted to partner with Lindsay on that study, and so I, I'm looking forward to seeing what we find.
0: And that sounds fascinating because as we have listened, sometimes is because of that lack of data that we cannot develop initial pilot programs via research that eventually translate into clinical practice. We will have Dr. Taliaferro also speaking a little more about her work here in the podcast. And to our listeners, as we just saw, it is important that we provide some data for that research and for joining those cohorts of studies. So we will be posting as well, Dr. Scrimshaw, some information on how to join the study, on how to recruit volunteers for that NIH-funded opportunity. With that said, I would like to thank you both for joining me today. If there's there's any last words that you would like to address to our listeners.
2: Wow. I think the take-home message for all of us today from this conversation is really that life happens on a spectrum whether that is our sexual identity and orientation or whether that's our gender identity and orientation i th- it really happens on a continuum and no one perhaps none of us are a complete kinsey 6 pure purely lesbian or gay or completely heterosexual we're all somewhere on that spectrum and the same for for gender and certainly gender presentation for all of us so I think that's that's really critical the next time we think when we hear about you know individuals who may be bisexual who's child is coming out as as non-binary, et cetera. I think it's it's important to realize that that all of us are are somewhere on a continuum and we need to really work hard, both in the healthcare sector and the research sector, to try to accommodate that so that we can Help ensure everyone is as healthy as possible and lives a great life. Exactly, in Central Florida,
1: we are fortunate to have many healthcare organizations and agencies that are specifically targeted to the LGBT population. Pineapple Healthcare happens to be one of them. I realize that on this continuum discussion, I happen to be a little bit bina- biased to Pineapple, but the reality is that there are resources and there are places and. You do not have to worry about your sexual orientation. When it goes to picking your healthcare provider, it makes a big difference. If someone, if your healthcare provider is looking to write your prescription for antibiotics and rush you out the room, or someone who's willing to take and factor into the equation, this is a bisexual person. This person has these risk factors. I need to address these risk factors or at least screen for them. And so there's a difference in the quality of care and what screening takes place. A lot of this comes from the research that. Obviously, individuals like Eric have done over time, so much thanks for that. We continue to apply it in clinical practice and try to give everyone as healthy a life as possible.
0: I love to hear that we are all on the same page, trying to promote a a longer, healthier life for all of our listeners in Central Florida and beyond out there. And with that, I would like to thank Eric Suarez and Eric Scrimshaw for joining us today in the podcast. That has been the Sex Cafe. Thank you.